You're listening to Museum Unlocked, recorded at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History here in Boulder, a place to be curious and be inspired. I'm Pat Kostelik, director of the museum. These podcasts have been created in the time of COVID and are designed to help you gain a behind-the-scenes view into the work and the people of the CU Museum. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Museum Unlocked, where we investigate the careers and journeys of the people behind the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, PhD student in anthropology and land manager of the Archaeozoology Lab, and I am joined by my co-host, Rebecca Kuhn, exhibit and program developer for the CU Museum. Um, today, we are interviewing Dr. Samantha Flad, one of our new anthropology uh, curators, collection managers. Which one's curator. your title, Dr. Flad? Curator. Curator. Awesome. So, and you know, it's right up here. So Dr. Flynn, you are the curator of archeology span here at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History, and also an assistant professor in anthropology. Um, could you briefly describe what your work looks like in these roles? Yeah, so I, I should clarify, I am one of two curators of archeology, span so not the only one. And I think you've already spoken to my colleague, Will Taylor. Uh, so the nice thing about this job and part of what I I love about it is that it allows me to fill different roles and do a wide variety of things in those roles. So as a researcher, I am a little weird for an archaeologist because I'm not necessarily a material specialist. I'm more interested in context and relationships among materials. So whereas a lot of people would come on here and talk about analyzing a specific artifact type like ceramics or animal bone, I look more into excavation records and where they were found and how they relate to their spatial settings that they are in. So that involves a lot of work on excavation notes and reading through what original uh, original researchers found when they were, were working at these sites. Uh, as a curator, I get the opportunity to do a lot more with the public than I think a lot of people in in more traditional professor positions get the chance to do. Uh, So I've loved getting to work with some of the student groups that come in. We also get to make some decisions about the collections, what we, if we were adding to our collections, which we are not currently very, very frequently. And we get to do a lot of work on making sure they're being cared for and properly properly treated in association and consultation with descendant community members uh, and groups associated with with these materials. And then as a professor, I get to teach and work with students, which is, I think, one of the most fulfilling parts of being in this role. Well, all right. And like kind of looking specifically at your role as a research scientist, um, archaeologists pretty much just study the trash of ancient civilizations or civilizations and cultures that are no longer um, with us. So how are you able to figure out how people relate to space, like in uh, architectural space um, and features through looking at somebody's trash can? I got a quick question. So Carlton, you're an archaeologist and and so are you, Sam. I'm I'm Mm -hmm. not. When you say archaeologists study the trash of, of previous people, that might come across as like, I don't know, almost... Like some of these are treasures. Can you give a little context of why why you refer to those objects as trash in this context? 
Well, I think like they're only treasures because modern people assign that value because it's no longer there. So like some of the ceramics that we look at today that people glorify, they're kind of like your run-of-the-will Walmart brand um, ceramics back in their time. So like to them, it wasn't that special, but to us, because it's no longer around. So we're, you know, most of what archaeologists look at is, um, you know, trash pits and what's left behind, what people didn't want and buried. So I agree with you, but I'm also going to turn it the opposite way, where I actually think that we dismiss too much of what we're looking at as trash. And it gives us a reason to not look any further into things like context and spatial setting and that we're missing some really important relationships because we're seeing things as useless, rubbish. There are all kinds of synonyms that you can come up with for trash in our society today that shows that it's very removed. In a lot of the places that we're working as archaeologists, and especially where I work in the Southwest, we're talking about villages and communities of probably no more than a few hundred people. Trash is still very much a part of your life and how you are shaping things. It's not getting taken off to a dump somewhere far away that you never see. Uh, one of the kind of classic ways to look at is look at trash as a way to show that you've been there for a long time. There's a continuity and a way to argue for access and rights to a place by saying, look at my big trash mound that we have outside of our village. We've been here forever. You can't, can't right. come in here. Uh, so I think trash is sometimes not the right word, even for the everyday cooking vessels, because it gives archaeologists an, an excuse to not necessarily look any further into where things are placed and what that means socially. Because there's also a difference between putting something in a midden where everyone can see you and putting something in a room that maybe a few people have access to or people can see you going into this private space. And that's one of the distinctions that I look at in particular is how people use deposition into rooms to demarcate their relationships with those spaces and how those might change over time throughout the occupation of a village. Can you say more about that in a, in a broad term? So more than other archaeologists who focus on the kind of objects you're really looking at the context and those relationships. So I've run education programs at Mesa Verde National Park, and we'll get more into your relationship with the Southwest. But in going on tours of ancient sites and having some understanding that like, oh, you know, this room is further back or this room is shaped differently. Um, tell us more about what you're paying attention to in your research to help you gain that understanding of the the relationships between objects, space, people, or other aspects that you might focus on? So what, what you just mentioned is a big part of it. Access and how hard a room is to get to can be a good hint as to what its role was in society, how many people could make it back through three or four other rooms. We often see storage rooms in the Southwest behind more public habitation rooms that are still going to be maybe household-based, but you're not going to have your storage out front because then it's easy for everyone to go in and and grab it. Uh, so we can think, honestly, a lot of this is probably easiest to think about today, even though we have a different relationship with trash today than we I think people did in the past. When you're talking about 
where you have access to putting things in the first place. People aren't walking into our offices at CU and throwing away their coffee cups because there might be trash cans there, but they don't have access to that space. We have very clearly defined publicly accessible trash cans and recycling bins. We also have ways to express our identities in how we throw things away. So CU has all of these great initiatives with recycling and composting, whether you are choosing to partake in those and spending the time to separate things into these different bins can be a way to signal your political or social identity and relationship with these kinds of green movements. Um, and the fact that it's visible and that they're out publicly can be kind of a shaming tool too, which is something we think about in the past. If everyone can see how much you have, if everyone can tell that you are wealthy and doing better and maybe than your neighbors. If you have a lot of food right now and other people are starving, you're not going to want to throw away all of the bones from these carcasses out in public because if you're trying to to store those uh, and save them for your family, everyone's going to know. And that's going to be a way to potentially create some conflict. So things like visibility is, I think, a big aspect of what what types of things are you willing to throw away and put and deposit in a village-wide midden or in a publicly accessible trash can today? And what types of things are you maybe saving and not going to throw away in those contexts? And maybe maybe they have more meaning and you want them to be placed in a certain space. And maybe they're also a way to demonstrate your relationship to a space and access to that space, whether or not it's conscious. And that's, that's I think, the the important distinction is some of the other things we study in archaeology, I think, can be a lot more conscious in terms of I am doing this specifically so people see me do this and so that I am aligned with this religious ideology. A lot of times disposal and deposition I don't think are as conscious, but they're still signaling what groups you're part of, where you can go, who you are. If we take the time to go back and say, these different lines of evidence are telling us slightly different things, but when we put them together, we can start to see that this is clearly the remains of a feast or some kind of special gathering that's different from normal. Or this is everyday trash, but it's being put in habitation rooms instead of in the middens. And what does that say about changing relationships at a site over time? So I'm curious, could you give us an example of kind of like a primary research question that you're investigating to help us frame all of these different aspects that are new and interesting to me. Yeah. So I can talk about a paper that I wrote that came out last year with a colleague of mine where we looked at miniature vessels, which are smaller than normal. They're kind of a big question in the archaeological record because there's not a good sense of what they're for. The two main arguments are that they are either being made for or used by children as kind of a way to enculturate yourself into society. It's a way to teach children how to use bowls and, and jars in correct ways, or that they are for kind of more ritually significant materials in the Southwest. And both of these come from the same kind of theoretical tradition of practice theory. So they're, they're closely tied, which is interesting. But the only two explanations we really get, and you get very specific examples from certain sites that say, oh, this is clearly ritual because they're all found in a cache in a certain room, whereas these are clearly children because they're all broken and and skipped up. So what a colleague of mine and I looked at was how they are made 
and what evidence we have for their use. So looking at the ceramics themselves and then also looking at their context of deposition. And what we were really asking is, can what can we understand about the role of these materials in society if we combine their entire kind of life history instead of looking at just one aspect of it? So in that case, we found that the deposition was actually the most strongly patterned in that they were placed in uh, ritually significant rooms in the Southwest. We weren't finding them in midden areas. We weren't finding them in certain types of contexts or in households the way you might expect if they were being played with by children and broken haphazardly. Uh, so in that case, we had a good argument that while they might have been played with by children at some point, while they may have had various phases to their life history within this village and gone through different roles when that ended, they were being deposited as more ritual objects. And just for our non-archaeologist listeners, can you define midden? Yes, sorry. Uh, so middens are just trash mounds. It's just our, our way of talking about a communal area to put trash outside of a village generally. Perfect. So those vessels were found in the Southwest? Mm-hmm. Where, where specifically? So that is from my work at Hamalavi. Uh, and the Hamalavi settlement cluster is... Uh, dates to what's considered the Pueblo IV period, so the late 1200s to about 1400 AD, a couple of decades prior to uh, the Spanish showing up in the Southwest and moving towards the historic period. Well, I shouldn't say a decade, a little over a century, but <laughs> we uh, doing math in my head quickly. So it's a late ancestral Hopi site. So in this case, we have pretty good evidence, uh, both through oral traditions and consultations with members of, of a Hopi tribe and, and through the material evidence in that the majority of the ceramics were being traded down from the Hopi mesas, uh, that these places were very closely tied and that when people left Hamalavi, they moved up to the Hopi mesas and continue to reside there today. And these are, these are large aggregated villages. So that's the other kind of distinguishing characteristic of, of this time period. And a lot of the research I've done is we're talking about the largest villages there, a thousand rooms, over a thousand rooms. So we're talking several hundred people, big sites. Mm. <laughs> so can you talk to us a little bit about how, what it's like to work on uh, a material culture and, and with descendant communities that you don't identify with and how that um, shapes your interpretations of your research and the material culture that you work on? Absolutely. That's a very good question and a hard one to answer uh, because it is something that I struggle with personally. And I think uh, I think a lot of my colleagues do as well to different degrees. Um, I am a white woman working on indigenous cultural materials. And there is a lack of indigenous archaeologists really practicing. There are more now than there used to be, which is great but it's still largely us white Americans coming in and interpreting these materials. Uh, luckily, archaeology has been moving towards a direction uh, of being more inclusive and more focused on consultation and working with descendant community members and giving more of a voice to the people who these objects really belong to and that these are more than objects too. Uh, so one of the things we do with that is changing things like vocab we don't say abandonment in the Southwest anymore because these sites are not abandoned. They are still very much a part of the lives of the villages and descendant community groups that, that lived there in the past, and they still see their ancestors as residing in these areas. 
And that certainly changes my approach to it. I see these as living communities that have just changed their role in that life cycle as opposed to ending it. Uh, I've been very lucky to get to co-author some things with some Hopi tribal members, but I will be the first to say that I have been guilty of going the wrong way about this in the past. And part of that's as a grad student, I think that it's very common to get told that you don't necessarily have time as a grad student to do this. And I only finished in 2018, so I'm still pretty new to this whole professional side of things. But it takes a long time to build up relationships with these communities, and it can take a long time to get to a point that you're really in a good position and that they trust you to do the right thing because there's a long history of not doing the right thing in anthropology and archaeology that has made certain groups very hesitant to work with us in general, and I can't blame them for that. Could you say more about what what comes to mind for you when you say the wrong, going about this the wrong way, and then like what is the right way? So I have worked with ascending community groups and members from Hopi, but largely after research has been complete and going in in terms of how we then publish it together and to expand upon what's been found and to say, hopefully this is of use to you in some way or another. Uh, What I would like to do moving forward is have this conversation much, much earlier in the process. Um, And I think that's how we should be moving as a field in general is doing consultation and more than consultation, collaborating with these communities from the get-go as we're designing projects to make sure that we are actually doing things that are of interest and of use and that they are excited about as well, as opposed to coming in afterwards and saying, oh, I put money in my grant to consult with you. I want you to be part of this publication and talk to me about this. It's, It's a good step and it's a good, it's better than it was before when that wasn't happening in the first place. So we're certainly moving in better directions, but we should be moving more and more towards people talking early in the process as opposed to late. And like, what was the the catalyst for, for you to, to realize the, this paradigm shift and how you interact with descendant communities? Oh, you're going to make me cry. Um, part of it's just archaeology and learning more about it and being at the University of Arizona and being in the Southwest and getting the chance to meet more and more people who are Pueblo and having relationships with them. And that's that's certainly a big factor. Um, but I, for me personally, I had a very, very dear colleague who was uh, like a big brother to me, who this was one of his real strengths. He did a really great dissertation. It just won the dissertation award from the Society of American Archaeology this last year. Uh, so his name is Dr. Saul Hedquist, and he's uh, was an amazing person and an amazing colleague, and he sadly passed away a little over a year ago. Uh, but I worked with him extensively in the Southwest and at Hamalavi, and this was one of his passions, and he really, really made it something that was much more real and significant in conversations with him and uh, seeing his passion for it. And now we had lots of plans to do projects moving forward, and He was the one who really started talking to me about the fact that it needed to be earlier in the process and we needed to be creating research questions and research designs instead of going to communities with all of that planned. And we had plans to do that. So now I'm just trying to figure out how to do it in a good way uh, on his behalf as well. That's really sweet. I want to learn more about kind of the 
the regional context, um, which also, of course, has a cultural context to your work. So the University of Colorado has had different faculty and curators who have um, done archaeological research in the Southwest for many decades. And now you're one of those curators who has done work in the Southwest. Additionally, the CU Museum has a collaboration with Mesa Verde National Park in which we are helping the park renovate their um, exhibits for their Chapin Mesa Archaeological Museum. And then there have also been um, field biologists who have done work down there. So there's kind of a growing relationship between the University of Colorado and Mesa Verde. Could you tell us more about the work that you've done in that region, including the Mesa Verde area, but I know that you've done a lot of work um, in Chaco Canyon, and you worked for Crow Canyon Archaeological Center. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I've been in the Four Corners for a little over a decade now, uh, working in, for some reason, never Utah, but Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado, right around that general region. Uh, so Homolavi, which I mentioned earlier, is kind of the latest and farthest west area that I've I've worked, but I got started working on Chaco Canyon, uh, which is another national park in New Mexico. Uh, and it's the main occupation of Chaco dates a little prior to what we're looking at with Mesa Verde. Uh, so we're talking more 800s to about 1200 AD in that case. But it was this very large regional center that's been highly contested. Archaeologists like to argue with each other about what it is and what it means. And there are a lot of models that have been presented by different researchers. And I am of the opinion that we do have more evidence for hierarchy and hierarchical organization there. And that's not something we talk about a lot in the Pueblo Southwest. There's kind of a history of a little bit more of a uh, egalitarian, peaceful Pueblo notion that has made it a little bit harder to get that into common thought, I think, than it would be in other regions. Uh, but this large center at some point kind of dissipates. People move out over time, but really in the 1100s. And at that point, there, it looks like mainly moving up towards southern Colorado and the Mesa Verde area. And that ends up being the next kind of center of population in time. So I've been working on various water management projects, um, as well as a large archive project that was directed by my undergrad advisor, uh, Dr. Steve Plogg, and is now run by Dr. Carrie Heitman at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And that's online and a great resource using all of the archives from early excavations. So this is where doing more contextual work, looking at original excavators' notes. In this case, we're talking 1890s and 1920s as some of the earliest notes. So it's fun to try to parse out what people were thinking and what, what was important to them when they were excavating at that time. Uh, but asking some of the same questions about context and relationship to rooms and what can we really get out of these areas that are often uh, overlooked because they're not in a direct feature or floor context. It's fill in a room that, that I'm interested in kind of parsing out. But then just last year, before coming up here, I was working as the supervisory archaeologist for Crow Canyon Archaeological Center, which is located very close to Mesa Verde in Cortez. There we were working on a Chaco outlying site. So there are sites throughout the area that seem to be related to Chaco Canyon based on some of the architectural features. And Crow Canyon's really trying to assess what that relationship looks like and how people 
survived a potentially harder uh, year, a couple of years of drought in the area. Um, and then whether it was really immigrants coming straight from Chaco Canyon and directly from Chaco Canyon, if they were coming from a little bit farther north in the northern San Juan, or if it was local populations that were emulating some of the symbols that were important farther south. So that site's very tied into the Mesa Verde system. We, When we were working there, we had a great view of Mesa Verde every day. It's a beautiful area to be. So I work, I have not actually worked explicitly in the park prior to working on this project with the museum, which has been a really great experience to get to know some of the park archaeologists there uh, and get to interact with them more. But it's uh, it's all a very interconnected region. As my uh, predecessor, Dr. Lexen, would argue, we can't really understand Mesa Verde without understanding Chaco. So that's kind of my tie-in to, to the project itself. So how does your research tie into like contemporary issues? Because when, when you were speaking, you're talking about like climate conditions are changing, there's drought, population movement, and then also issues of identity and how people are reformatting who they are when they move into a new place. So I think the third one is my main tie-in, to be honest. Um, as a Southwest archaeologist, you kind of have to do some degree of considering environmental conditions because it is an arid region and water is always a concern. But my main questions and studies focus more on things like identity and community formation. So I think it's very related to what we're seeing in the world today and that we're seeing people coming from different areas with different backgrounds, different understandings of how they express themselves, different understandings of even little things like personal space, which has become a bigger issue in current conditions than in the past. Uh, but all of those are things that we learn very young and we don't think about. But then when you all of a sudden are living in a different way and living with people you you didn't formally interact with, you have to figure out a way to work with one another uh, and not drive each other crazy, ideally. So I think a lot of the relationships to space uh, – and deposition and how we use deposition to demarcate those relationships is getting at questions we have today about ownership and how do you leave something behind, uh, legacies of who who you think you are and how other people perceive you. I could see so many questions, um, research questions about our world right now that speak to that, where it's like, okay, it's July of 2020. We're dealing with COVID-19, which is totally impacting how we relate to each other in space. And, you know, just a pandemic in general is going to impact that. And I'm, you know, thinking more about uh, racial implications of whose space, you know, is prioritized and, you know, who has access to what spaces. And then we are having all these climate events, which impact space as well. So I see lots of connections to, uh, today. The protests have been really interesting to watch in that regard for me um, and the different ways people are protesting access to space too. Uh, so the requirements of staying at home and, and social distancing, people really certain groups of people really pushed back on the idea of being at all restricted in the access that they are used to having. And the way they were were met generally was 
largely peacefully, despite how they maybe came prepared for what looked from the outside like battle. Whereas other groups and groups that are not normally seen as having access to those spaces, particularly Black Americans, were treated hostily from the beginning, despite coming oftentimes very peacefully uh, into these public spaces. There's just a news case now about a couple that covered over a mural in California, a Black Lives Matter mural, and they are now going to be charged with some misdemeanors. But the idea that these two individuals felt like it was their right to decide how the public space would be utilized and what would be symbolized uh, on this road in front of a courthouse in their town, I think it's in California, is is a little shocking when you think about access and who feels a right of ownership over certain parts of their cities. That's really interesting. Yeah, a lot to think about there. With that, we'll let our listeners think about that some more. We'll be back with segment two of Museum Unlocked with uh, Dr. Samantha Flad. Um, so stay tuned. Hi, my name's Jim Hockle. I'm the senior educator at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. The CU Museum creates exhibits and educational programs to foster curiosity and appreciation of the natural world and of human cultures. If we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, we would invite you to come visit our free museum on the Boulder campus, which features five exhibit halls, including paleontology, anthropology, and the Bio Lounge, a place designed especially for students. In non-pandemic times, we host lectures and programs, provide guided tours and workshops for groups of all ages, distribute hands-on educational materials to classrooms across Colorado, and offer hands-on programs for families and children, like family days and mornings at the museum. Until we can serve you in person, you can explore online exhibits, downloadable nature guides, family activities, at-home teaching resources, and even Zoom backgrounds on our Museum from Home section of our website. Explore with us at www.colorado.edu forward slash CU Museum. The University of Colorado Museum of Natural History houses the largest collections of natural history objects in the Rocky Mountain region. Currently, more than 5 million objects are here in our collections across a, a wide array of disciplines, including anthropology, botany, entomology, paleontology, and zoology. The collections include the world's oldest documented Navajo textile, the best collections in the world of lichens from the Galapagos Islands, and Colorado's largest collection of bees. Our 11 curators also conduct research and are active faculty members in the departments of ecology and evolutionary biology, anthropology, and geology here at the University of Colorado Boulder. Hello, my name is Ashley Mugley, a recent museum and field studies graduate from CU Boulder, where I focused on anthropology collections management. For my final project, I focused on identifying unassociated funerary objects and collections and assisting our new curator, Dr. Sam Platt, in preparing collections for consultations. I chose CU to continue my education due to its reputation, access to a wide network of museum professionals, and the importance of community collaboration while caring for cultural materials. The University of Colorado Museum of Natural History is home to a two-year master's degree in museum and field studies, as well as a professional certificate program. Learn more at colorado.edu slash cumuseum slash MFS. Welcome back to segment two of Museum Unlocked, where we explore the careers and journeys of the people behind the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. 
I'm your host, Rebecca Kuhn, here with co-host Carlton Gover, and we are interviewing Dr. Samantha Flad, Curator of Archaeology and Assistant Professor of Anthropology here at the University of Colorado. Welcome back, listeners. So, Sam, why do you do what you do? I know it's a very deep question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I was not prepared for that one. Uh, Mainly because I'm, I'm very passionate about what I get to do in the various different settings that I get to do it. So I love research, but I also really love teaching. And that's something that I thought I was going to do for most of my childhood. My mom's a special ed teacher, so I grew up pretty sure I was going to be a high school teacher or of some age teacher. And uh, when I found archaeology and realized they don't really teach that in high school, college professor became the, the next best way to go about it. So it sounds like your your mom being a special ed teacher kind of inspired a love of education and teaching in you, but then you discovered a love of archaeology and were like, hmm, if I want to intertwine these two things, I need to be at a university setting. Pretty much. And archaeology to me feels a lot like putting together a puzzle, but we don't have all of the pieces, which is always fun to me. I I loved uh, word puzzles and Sudoku and whatnot as a kid and This was a way to keep kind of thinking about how people lived in the past and trying to put together those puzzles as best we can. That's neat. So so you have these multiple roles um, in your position where you're curating a collection, doing research and teaching. Can you tell us how those roles benefit each other? Yeah. So I, I feel very lucky to be in this position. There's not as many kind of curator and professor jobs out there. There's not that many academic jobs out there to begin with. And these are certainly fewer and farther between. And it's uh, it's a great position to be in, to be able to see the various sides of what we do. Uh, so one of the things that I'm, I'm really passionate about on the curation side is that we need to be making full use of the materials that we have. A lot of the groups, especially in the Southwest that I work with, would prefer we not excavate very much. Uh, That's seen as disturbing ancestral sites. So the idea that we have all of this stuff and all of these things that people have been excavating for the last century and a half that are sitting in museums not getting studied because people are trying to go out and do their own excavations is really a problem. And it is something that's been shifting over time. But getting to help to promote work with these collections and to make sure they're being cared for and treated respectfully and in ways that better align with beliefs of of descendant community members is an important aspect of that as well. So making sure things aren't photographed or aren't made public if they shouldn't be based on NAGPRA or other considerations. And then getting to teach and work with students in that regard, it's, it's a great opportunity to really talk to them about the whole process and highlight the fact that archaeology is a lot more than going and sitting in an excavation unit and discovering things that haven't been seen for a few centuries to to longer. Getting to highlight kind of how these objects then require further care, how much you can do with them after they come out of the ground, and how much time goes into that side of it is really something that's 
hard to, I think, always communicate to, especially kind of introduction to archaeology classes that have certain conceptions of this is the adventure archaeology lifestyle. And the museum provides a good inlet to introduce that to them as well. I love that you are able to leverage your research and your role with the museum to help young potential archaeologists better understand kind of what the possibilities are. Could you say a little bit more about how you view your role as a teacher and potentially as a mentor on a university campus? Yeah, so I I really view it more as a mentor at this stage than a teacher, I think, because I, and this is part of how I was treated as a student as well, um, I think I'm working with adults and the idea is that they will potentially become future colleagues and should be treated as such. So I benefited immensely from mentorship myself. Um, my undergrad advisor was amazing. My dissertation chairs have been amazing. I had a wonderful postdoc mentor. Uh, kind of all throughout the process, archaeology is a lot about relationships and interactions with other archaeologists because we're a small discipline. So you kind of know everyone else that is involved to some degree or another. And that kind of support was instrumental to me getting to where I am today and getting to provide that kind of support and work with students and help kind of show them how how to go about this. Because that's the other side of academia is a lot of it's not clear. It becomes very second nature to us as academics to write an abstract for a conference or put together an article for a journal. But the first time you have to do that, if you have no background, if you don't have family members who are academics, it's like trying to assess a foreign language. Uh, So getting to help students figure that out and let them ask the dumb questions that they might be afraid to ask uh, certain people is really important to me. I want them to be comfortable with me and to feel like they can get what they need to move forward in their career out of conversations as opposed to seeing it as distant and unattainable. So what are you teaching this next semester? I am teaching a Pueblo archaeology practicum, hopefully, although that is supposed to be based on a lot of material analyses that uh, require in-person So we will see how that goes. (laughs) Welcome to COVID era. (laughs) So within the context of what you were just saying about, you know, how you want to show up as a, as a mentor in context with that class, what are you hoping students gain from their experiences in that practicum? So my goal for students is always to get something that benefits them in the long run out of courses. So if at all possible, I want grad students especially, but undergrads as well, to be working on projects that can become senior theses, conference posters, presentations, publications down the road. I want to be setting them up for success in the future. So in this case, the exciting thing about this class, which would initially have been using the Yellow Jacket collections from a long-term field project run through the museum here, uh, and now might rely more on the Chaco Research Archive, which I worked on as an undergraduate, so I'm very familiar with, and is now a publicly accessible outlet that I've published on, and several others have published using that data in the past. But ideally, I'll have students forming questions and putting together projects that can become either individual or group papers and publications moving forward or presentations moving forward to get them 
used to that process and hopefully introduce it in a way that's a little bit more handheld uh, and giving them a little bit more guidance early on so that in future years, they're more and more comfortable doing it independently. Awesome. So Carlton's a PhD student in anthropology and is going to be taking that class. So Carlton, how do you uh, envision this course helping you then um, have have this opportunity as uh, a stepping stone towards something bigger for you? When um, Dr. Flad first got here, I met with Dr. Flad, and you mentioned to me that one of your biggest things was to mentor grad students and provide grad student support. And you know, you told me about a year ago those same things you just mentioned here on this podcast. So I mean, like that's very genuine in how Dr. Flad like thinks about us as, as colleagues. And I don't know how to write an article. I've been, I think when you first showed up, you offered to help me turn my thesis into a publication, which I'm now starting on. And I still have no idea what I'm doing and how to get that ready for the real world. Like I can write 20 to 25 pages for a class, but 10,000 words and being very concise is not something we're necessarily trained for as grad students quite yet. So I was really excited. I still am very excited for uh, Sam's class. Um, because I'm also in, in the museum studies side of things going for that certificate. Um, because that's something that we don't get taught in archaeology is how to use collections and all. It's always what's the field work, what's the existing material, but not actually using a collection. Um, and having, hearing uh, Sam sit here and talk about how we're going to walk through turning this, this research into something that's doable. Um, extremely excited for it. Um, you know, I don't work in the Southwest, I work in the Plains, but you know, the same methods that you learn about can be applied to whatever region, no matter what you're studying. And especially on my end, also working for a museum in Oklahoma that has no resources, getting to see a database and how it's used is, is just beneficial to so many ways as my career. So I'm, I'm really excited for this class and hoping that COVID doesn't rear its ugly head <laughs> too much in the fall. Uh, because I really want to come back to school. Like I hate working in my, in my house. It is just, it's a nightmare. Um, I can't get anything done. I understand that part. Uh, and I do, I believe, I think you should turn your thesis into at least two articles if I am remembering correctly from your talk last fall, because I think you have a lot of data there that you should utilize to the fullest extent possible. Yeah. <laughs> so we should talk yeah. again about this. Agreed. Lovely. Um, well, hopefully it'll be a great experience for both of you and COVID won't be <laughs> too terrible. But I, I want to talk more about kind of like, how did you get to where you are in your role as a teacher? Sounds like that mm -hmm. was sparked by um, having a mom as a special ed teacher. What sparked the interest in archaeology? <laughs> uh, so this is my fun story of that probably makes me look bad, but I tell anyway. I took my first archaeology class the spring of my first year at the University of Virginia. I took it because it fit my schedule and didn't make me wake up too early and sounded like the most interesting course at the exact time slot that I had decided I wanted to take my fifth course. Uh, so I had no intention of being an archaeologist when I went to college. Uh, and it happened to be Southwest Archaeology with my undergrad mentor, uh, Dr. Steve Plogg, who was just recently retired. And that really set everything in motion for me. Uh, we were using his book as the textbook. And I remember reading it on my first room dorm bed one day and just saying, I really am enjoying this. And I hadn't even put together that he was the author on it yet because that was not something that I was 
paying attention to. So I noticed that and went in and talked to him very nervously. I'm sure I was shaking uh, when I handed in my final exam to say that I maybe kind of could see myself wanting to do this. (laughs) And he just opened doors for me right and left and continues to be a huge influence and, and support for me. Yeah. And seeing his passion for it in the class and and getting to hear him talk about it is really why I do this now. Do archaeology and play the role of teacher mentor within the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely see him as my, my example of how I want to mentor and support students. I always forget that you got your degree from UVA, and I'm always astonished that a graduate from Radford and UVA can sit in the same room at the same place. <laughs> so many of my friends went to Radford. <laughs> Um, was there anything that sparked an interest in you in doing this work in a museum context? Yeah. So moving to grad school, I went, I was very lucky. I went to the university of Arizona. It's a really, really strong program in our field. Uh, and they are associated with the Arizona state museum. They're right across kind of across the street. And my, one of my co-chairs there, uh, Dr. Chuck Adams, is in the same kind of position that that I am here. So he's a curator and a professor in the anthropology department. So he ran the Homolavi research program for years that I talked about a little bit in the first segment and where my dissertation work was based using his collections uh, and getting to see him work on not just the anthropology side, but getting to do a little bit more of the outreach side, a little bit more of how putting together exhibits, how do we communicate this to the public? How do we present archaeology and history was really exciting to me because I think we, outside of anthropology, we often forget as a society how much of our understanding of history is based on how it's told to us and what gets presented and and represented. So the idea of being in a museum was always really exciting to get to be part of that process of communicating history and shaping how we how we see history hopefully moving more and more towards a a more representative and equitable representation well now you're in a great position to impact that so fun question here so so part of this podcast is really to help young adults um better understand just like the diversity of careers that are available to them and the pathways that people take to get to those places. But imagine that you have a a student that wants to be an archaeologist because he or she wants to be like Indiana Jones. What do you, what do you tell this student? Uh, So I, I am probably the uh, opposite side of some. Uh, There are many archaeologists in our field who were inspired by Indiana Jones and that is where it comes from. I think Will Taylor uh, admittedly is one of those. So. <laughs> and Will is wonderful, so I want to be careful with how I answer this. Indiana Jones <laughs> is not my favorite. <laughs> I don't think it's a bad thing for archaeology to be more publicly accessible, and I think that Indiana Jones does some great things in that regard. Um, Indiana Jones is more of a grave robber, in my opinion, <laughs> um, and does more looting of sites and does a little bit more sensationalizing and othering of the cultures that he's working with. And at the end of the day, that's my my biggest issue. I get that we're not going to have a Hollywood blockbuster with someone 
extensively taking notes while they brush off uh, every layer. So I, I get that some of the part that comes across as looting or, or grave robbing to me is is just how it would be presented in that context. Um, but my real problem is how it treats other cultures and presenting these sides. I would be quick to to warn people that archaeology is much more tedious than it appears in Indiana Jones and that most of our days are spent very carefully going through data, uh, looking through hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of individual ceramic sherds from, from a site to analyze each one. And that then we're spending months playing with data and looking at what we can find and what patterns are popping out. Uh, so it's not that I think it's a bad thing to be inspired. And if that's where it initially sparks your interest, that's great. But understanding that there's a lot more to archaeology than is presented in these kind of Hollywood blockbusters is really, really important. I would like to add that if you listen to the director's commentary of Indiana Jones, that Steven Spielberg even says, like, he's not an archaeologist. He's kind of inspired to be this guy that's disenfranchised by academia and is just kind of doing whatever he wants. That's good to know. That makes sense. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that either until a friend told me. It's like, well, actually, and I was like, oh, this makes a lot more sense. I would love to watch Indiana Jones with a diverse group of archaeologists who would, you know, pick it apart in different ways. But anyway, so digging, digging a little deeper into the the real realities of being an archaeologist, um, and particularly being uh, in academia and working with a museum. Tell us a bit about some of the barriers that you have overcome to get to where you are and maybe some of the privileges that you've had that have helped get to where you are. So I'm, I'm going to start with privileges. As we talked about before, archaeology is very white and I am a white woman from a middle to middle upper class background. And that has been a huge factor in letting me pursue this in the first place. Uh, grad school for archaeology is very long, and the job market is very tough right now. I have many friends who have been unemployed for a semester or a year or who are working adjunct positions, which are obscenely underpaid and underappreciated for the work that gets put into them. Uh, so having the ability to have family support if something went wrong is a, is a huge part of this. I think we do see a large proportion of archaeologists who come from even wealthier backgrounds than I do because it, it's expensive. Field schools are expensive. There was a recent article uh, in a journal that came out, I think in the last month or two, that talks about some of these barriers and the expense of field school is a huge factor. So having being able to afford that in the first place because it's expected from grad school, and then being able to just have the comfort that if I wasn't given a TA position one year, I could move home and live at my parents for a year is a, a big impetus to let you pursue something that, that can feel a lot more iffy and more financially precarious. If you don't have that backup, if you don't have somewhere to go, if something goes wrong, it's very hard to say, I'm going to do this. I was also single and childless when I started grad school, and that gave me endless amounts of time to work on academia, and that was my focus, and I was complimented at one point pretty early on for not seeing the weekends as days off, 
which looking back, I, I don't think that that's a good approach. And I don't want to encourage that in, in grad students working with me because I, I think having a life is, is valuable as well. Uh, I but do see a lot of the workaholic <laughs> culture being um, uplifted in academia still. It's a weird being busy and, and productive is a, a definite cachet for academics in general and, and certainly archaeologists as well because it does take time. You don't just sit down and write an article in in one sitting. It's a lot of reworking and rewriting and trying something out that doesn't work and having to toss it aside. So if you only have two hours a day to work on that, it's really hard to get to that point and say, I'm going to throw away my last month of work because I realized I it's not going where I thought it would. If you have eight hours a day, then maybe that's only a few a few days of work. So you're now married and have a just turned one year old daughter. Just turned one. <laughs> so how how have those roles impacted um, kind of your place in your career now? So it's definitely different. It's funny as a a woman in grad school and in archaeology, you get a lot of advice on whether to have kids, when to have kids. I got married during grad school. I met my husband during grad school, and I'm lucky in that he's also an academic and very supportive of field work and, and what it takes to do this. I know lots of friends whose relationships ended because they were with someone who did not understand what it meant to be going to the field for four to 16 to 20 weeks at a time or more. So I, I'm very lucky in that regard to have a, a really wonderfully supportive husband who understands what this is like. But I think coming back to the time question, that's that's where having a, a kid in academia is very difficult and especially so for mothers. I had my daughter right before I started my position here. So I'm pre-tenure. So it's not always a recommended route. Lots of women do do it, but it's a time when we're supposed to be producing nonstop. And when you have an infant at home, you just don't have the endless hours to do that that you used to. And that's been the real shock for me. And I'm happy I did it. I wanted to be a mother and I am thrilled with how my family has formed out over these last year. But it's hard and it often conflicts with the culture of academia, even though I don't think it should. Do you have any words of wisdom for particularly young females who are interested in pursuing archaeology and or academia who also want to become mothers? I think it's important to know that it's possible and to see those role models, which there are more and more people in archaeology, more and more women in archaeology having kids, I think, in the last decade or two than there were for a long time. Uh, so it's certainly possible, and it's not something that should bar you from feeling like you can pursue this. Uh, but I do think it's important to go in with your eyes open to the fact that certain attitudes and availabilities are still rewarded in academia and archaeology, and they are not necessarily going to be things that align as well as we would like with motherhood and, and parenthood in general. There are also lots of really involved fathers who have the same the same kind of issues that, that mothers do. So it's a bigger societal issue, and I think it's a bigger issue in academia where we need to stop over-glorifying the 16 hours in your office uh, nonstop work model 
but it's going to take a little bit of time for that to happen, unfortunately. There's also just still issues in general, as, as we see in society as a whole, with some sexism in archaeology and being a woman in archaeology is still a little bit, it's, it's tricky to talk about because I feel like overall I've been very lucky and I've had mostly male mentors who have been really incredible to me. But we see news stories all the time coming out of examples of really disgusting uh, sexual harassment and an assault that happens in the field and the tradition of archaeology and the dependence on mentors in academia is, I think, part of what allows some of that abuse of power because you become so dependent on your mentors that if you end up in a bad situation, it's very hard to get out of it. Um, luckily with Me Too and, and a lot of things that are happening, I think more and more of these people are being called out and stopped. Um, and I've been very lucky to not experience that side of it. Although there are still issues with just representation in academic positions we have. And in journal articles, there's still a much higher proportion of males in academic jobs, despite the fact that females make up at least 60% of grad students in archaeology now. But I think we make up maybe 40 or less wow. of tenure tenure track professors. We could have a whole episode about this. <laughs> I, I saw a recent statistic, I don't know how recent this was, about um, <clears throat> how because of COVID and quarantine that there's been a surge in publications, but it's mostly men who are writing with the time. And I, I first saw that and didn't think anything of it, but my partner, who's a paleoanthropologist, is like, no, this is men coming home and not taking care of their kids and are just focusing on, on publishing rather than equal time spent with, with kids and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, woof. I've seen a lot of articles on how hard the current pandemic is hitting young female academics, especially with kids. Apparently, the biggest factor in reduced productivity right now is having a child under five. And part of the problem is that we're again looking at that generational divide where most full professors, a higher proportion of full professors are still going to be men and generally white men, whereas there are more women in uh, newer, lower positions, so just starting out like I am on, on the tenure track. And we're also at the age where we're more likely to have young children. So there are various factors that are kind of colliding right now, and it's going to be kind of frightening to see what happens to a lot of people's careers in the next few years. And I, I feel very lucky because I, I'm in a position now where my time can be almost deferred a little bit. So if I'm not as productive as I would like to be because I don't have the time right now, once my daughter is in school, once my daughter is a little bit older and a little bit more independent, it'll be a little bit easier for me to put in extra time. And if I have a year that's not as great, they pause the tenure clock, it, I can work past that. But I think a lot about mothers and scholars dealing with various traumas or elder care or mental health illness issues right now who are trying to produce but are trying to get a job in a market that just crashed and may have a very unproductive year or two at the same time that a few colleagues who have a very special set of circumstances where they have the support they need, they don't have children to take care of, they don't have elderly relatives to take care of, they have the financial means to not worry about that are just going to be producing massive quantities and make it very hard for anyone else to compete when they're looking, when people are looking at CVs for jobs in the next couple of years. Which is a whole nother can of worms of how academia prioritizes publishing rather than science communication or 
things yes. like that. And not everyone's <laughs> strengths is writing. Yes. So I've got one more question to close us out, but for a young adult who particularly is driven to do something good in the world, but is struggling to find their pathway to a career in which it pays the bills and they feel successful. Um, what, what kinds of empowering words of wisdom might you give them on how they might navigate the, the pathways of what feel like failure sometimes and then what feels like success? I don't think you can get to a good position without failing many times. Um, I have certainly failed at many things in archaeology. I've had plenty of grants rejected. I've had papers rejected. Um, I've had many stumbling blocks where I decided I just was going to step away and maybe I didn't belong in this field. Um, and I don't actually think you can be any good at something without questioning whether you are good enough at it, if that makes sense. Um, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome in academia, and I have never met a good archaeologist without imposter syndrome. I think it's kind of a requisite to question yourself. <laughs> um, but pushing through that and developing the resilience to keep going when things are not working out uh, the way you wanted to, I think makes you better at what you're doing and figuring out how to tweak what you're working on. But I do want to add the caveat that there are also very real structural issues that make that harder. So it's great to say, just keep working and it'll, it'll get you there. But there's the real need of having a roof over your head and making enough money to, to eat. And at some point, if archaeology or academia is just not allowing you to do that, then there are times that stepping away is the right call too. And I know that's not the most empowering, uplifting thing, but I, I don't want to sit here and present every obstacle as surmountable. I do think being more open with advisors and mentors about your needs is an important aspect to that too. And speaking up for yourself is, is a powerful portion of that because so much of archaeology and academia has been staying quiet or talking with your friends about not being able to get past a certain roadblock. And it's easy for people in better positions to forget about that when you're not telling them what you're going through and telling them the real obstacles. So the more we can be out in the open about that, I think the better off we'll be. I think your attitude towards mentorship will probably help open up a lot of conversations with students to have have those insights shared between each other. So I hope so. look forward to <laughs> seeing your your path evolve here at CU, particularly with students. I appreciate that. And I'm sorry that's not the most empowering, uplifting note to end on, but archaeology really is a wonderful discipline and it really is something that anyone is capable of doing and pursuing if they want to uh, and should be something people consider because I've loved it. Carlton likes it enough to still be in the PhD program. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I'm ready for it to be done now. <laughs> Counting those days. That's a good sign too. You have to want to get out. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, unfortunately, our time has come to a close and we're done with this episode. But um, thank you so much, Dr. Flad, for being here with us today and sharing your stories about your research and your life and your career. Well, thank you guys for having me. I'm Samantha Eads, Visitor Services Coordinator at the CU Museum. Thanks for listening to the Museum Unlocked podcast. You can follow the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History on Facebook at, at CUMNH and Instagram at, at CU Museum. You can also email us questions, comments, and support at cumuseum at colorado.edu. Learn more about our organization at colorado.edu slash cumuseum. And please explore our online resources for teachers and families updated weekly on our Museum from Homepage. page.